When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, thank you for listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast this week. I'm Ali Maxwell. Joining me in the studio, mixing it up just a little this week, we've got Liam Thumb, we've got Michael Cox, we've also got Tom Harris with us. Hello, how are you? All well? Yeah, really well. How are you? Good. Uh, looking forward to this, right up my street. And obviously, uh, Mark has done some... Pulled out some good stats in a recent episode, so hopefully I can, I can follow suit. That is what we ask of him, and that is what we're asking of you today, as well as Michael and Liam. This is uh, a repeat of a pod that we've done annually, I'd say, for the last two or three years. A, a returning favourite of mine, anyway. Pub ammo for the field tilt era. It's Staty Tapas. Get your anoraks on. It's raining metrics. Before we get into it, Tom, last time we saw you was a Surprise League Leaders pod. And normally when we do surprise league leaders after the first or second international break, check in again in three months, normal services resumed, Bayern are back top, Real or Barca are top. None of it. Girona, still top of La Liga. Leverkusen, still top of the Bundesliga. Yeah, and, and Leverkusen looked really convincing. I mean, the last two wins have been kind of in the last minute as well in, in additional time, and those are really big for the confidence. And um, Girona, I, fe- I fear for them a little bit. Real Madrid are on their tails. So, yeah, we'll have to see how that one goes. But by Leverkusen, yeah, they look in great shape. Xabi Alonso continuing to get a lot out of that team. So for today's episode, the 20 Premier League clubs have been divvied up between Michael, Liam and Tom, uh, and their task really is to, to wow us, or at the very least, educate us. Uh, I've chosen the order of clubs based on their ranking in a secret metric that I've selected, uh, and at the end, you will have a chance to guess what it is, uh, and you will not succeed. I'm sure of it. Uh, Michael, you're going to kick us off uh, with a stat about Newcastle United. Yeah, Newcastle, the interesting thing I found about them is that they have the lowest tackle success rate in the Premier League, 42%, which in itself may be not that interesting, but I do think it is significant in relation to their performances against Milan and PSG at home. I don't know whether you remember, but there were a few big tackles in those games and the players really celebrated it and really like went up to the crowd and like pumped them up after those tackles. And it kind of seemed to set the tone for, for two quite good home performances. But that's just not been the case week in, week out in the league. They are the worst side at winning tackles. It wasn't the case last season. Went back and checked and they were mid-table in that statistic last year. But yeah, those big tackles you remember in those Champions League games, definitely not a feature of their week in, week out performances. It's not the sort of stat where you want to be 20th out of 20. At the same time, how important do do we think it is, you know, just in terms of the game as a whole? Could it be the case that they're pressing so intensely that they have more opportunities to tackle and it could be some sort of statistical variance on that front? Yeah, possibly. I wouldn't have thought there's a great correlation between tackle success rate and points or goal difference or whatever. And yeah, in isolation, I don't think it's that interesting, but those are almost the moments I think of from this Newcastle season, Mm. those big tackles in those Champions League games. So yeah, that's why I brought it out. 
they've had quite a settled midfield three or sort of four players fitting into that midfield three. I did a piece after they played Liverpool at the start of the year just saying how basically tired the midfield looked because they're doing an awful lot of pressing and there's some great um, data that Sky Sports published uh, earlier on in the season that looked at sort of individual and team pressures and while they come out overall was quite a high pressing team a lot of them were individual presses so you've basically got central midfielders making really big bursts out wide to to press fullbacks and obviously when they lost Joe Linton to injury that really compounded things as he's probably got the best physical profile for doing that so I wonder when players do fatigue later in games and have to cover those distances, like we said for strikers before and scoring, trying to then time a tackle can be a bit more difficult if, if you're tired. Tom, it's been a difficult return to the Premier League for Burnley, Vincent Company, the manager. They're on 12 points from 21 games. Statistically, what stands out for you? Yeah, it's all a bit bleak, to be honest. I mean, if we look at some of the more st- serious statistics, they have the lowest XG per shot. So that um, kind of suggests that they're not creating the highest quality opportunities. And they've also been behind at half-time in 12 of their 21 games so far. That's more than any team. So it seems like they're starting games on the back foot a little bit. But I thought to zoom out a little bit and compare, you know, the company era in the Premier League with some of Daesh's attempts would be, you know, quite quite revealing. Mm. And one stat jumped out to me is that they've already completed more passes in their own half this season than they did in the whole of Daesh's last season <laughs> in the Premier League. So that points to a clear change in, in how they're building up, how they're structured and how they want to play the game. Love that. Uh, Liam, Ange Postacoglu's Tottenham Hotspur is your first offering. Well, they were second half Spurs last season, weren't they, a lot of the time? And I was really impressed and it got, I think, overlooked because of how they've sort of finished games and, and dropped points. So they've dropped 16 points this season, which is the fourth most, but they've scored the, the first goal the most times of any team in the league, which is 16 times. They've only gone on to win 10 of those games and there's been the Chelsea game is a standout example of you know going ahead and then and then falling behind. City away where it ended up 3 all, maybe felt not quite like a loss because they came back late. Wolves away where they conceded two goals late on. But for a team that's only eight points off top to have started games generally so well and be in control, um, I think is a really, really good sign. They're probably lacking the, the depth a little bit. It's a great plan A, but I think we see playing such an intense press, a high line and attacking with so many rotations might need um, support because it's hard to get players to do that for 90 minutes every week. But I think that's really good signs for, mm. for a team in transition. Yeah, the, the throwing away of Leeds stats, lose points lost from winning position stats, I always find very interesting because it, it's a really, it's a highly negative emotion for a fan when you have the lead and then you lose the lead. And of course, it feels like you've thrown something away. I also think there's a sort of very basic statistical truth, which is, if you are scoring the first goal in the game, more often than not, then I think the the number given normally is around 70% of games are won by the team that scores first. So to my eyes, it feels like you'd, you'd rather start being a team that is scoring first a lot and giving away a, a proportion of those leads than a team that hasn't quite nailed things at nil-nil and is needing to learn to do that. I, I personally feel like it's easier probably to learn to see games out over time than be better at nil-nil. Yeah, it's, it's way more sustainable. And when there's no Harry Kane to just cross to and, and head her in all the time, it's better to get one up in games. Uh, Tom, you got Nottingham Forest up next. Now, Forest have been part of one of my favourite news stories. I don't know if we can call it <laughs> news stories. Uh, and, and probably one of my favourite athletic pieces of the season as well. Uh, I'm talking about Foamgate. Now, this was uh, Ivan Tony moving the ball a couple of inches to the right-hand side, moving the foam with it. Uh, and then curling the ball around the wall into the near post against Brentford last weekend. And there's been a quite remarkable deep dive into this by Jacob Whitehead of The Athletic. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel for Forest a little bit because they are top of this list, but they've only actually had four direct free kicks. What's um, happened there? Yeah. Why have they only taken four shots from free kicks this season? Don't get the ball into the final third much, I would I would guess. Maybe don't transition win enough. a lot as well, where you end yeah. up getting actions of final passes or crosses, yeah. um, playing the ball early. Yeah, but essentially this article paints them as kind of the naughtiest team in terms of moving the ball when they shouldn't be doing. But really, it's probably Manchester City are just behind them who've had a lot more free kicks. Uh, Julian Alvarez has moved the ball quite sneakily on, on multiple occasions. But yeah, Forrest are top of this list. Um, the stat that I did have was more related to their, obviously their style of play. And it's that they have the lowest defensive line in the Premier League this season. Mm-hmm. So if we measure the average distance away from the goal that a team completes their defensive actions, Forest they sit bottom at 22 and a half metres. So, you know, that also marries with the fact that they've made the fewest ball recoveries in the final third. They don't press high. But at the same time, they have scored the most goals from fast breaks. Mm-hmm. So... They're good at sitting in and they're good at pouncing on the counter-attack. And Anthony Alanga is, is central to all of that because he's actually assisted five of those seven goals and scored the other one himself. Is that an interesting aspect of the managerial change as well from Cooper to Nuno to the extent that it, my perception of Nuno's general style of play is that this won't be revolution, shall we say, but just trying to be better within that broad framework? Yeah, I think that is true. I mean, they were very defensive and counter-attacking under under Cooper, weren't they? But yeah, I think of Nuno as being exactly the same at Wolves. Of course, Morgan Gibbs-White, you know, a, a familiar player from the two. So yeah, I agree. Although I, I thought they were quite impressive at the weekend against Brentford. I know, I know they lost, but it was just a really entertaining game, which I don't think of Forrest as participating in that many entertaining games under, under Cooper. Uh, Tom, by dragging you into this pod, we've thrown you to the Wolves. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, quite similar to the Forest stat, really, but slightly different. Um, they Wolves have taken over Crystal Palace's mantle for the team with the most successful take-ons this season, okay. according to Opta. And the player who leads the way in that regard is Mateus Cunha, which I think is quite interesting. There was a good example of uh, him against Brighton, where, yeah, he receives a ball at a really awkward height, kind of knees it around the oncoming defender and then absolutely races into the final third. So... He's got that potential. Obviously, Pedro Neto coming back into the team as well. We might see a bit more of that as well. But yeah, kind of linked to this ability to wriggle out of pressure and, and launch these fast attacks. Wolves are right up there with Nottingham Forest. Underrated storyline in the Premier League this season. Wolves just becoming so much more fun. Yeah. <laughs> Playing such, well, much more exciting football than we'd seen over the last few years uh, as well. Uh, Liam, you're up next mm. with the team in third place. That's Arsenal. Mm. Well, we kind of just did a whole pot on their attack recently, so I wanted to avoid um, sort of going through all that so people can go back to and, and listen. I was going to try and come up with a clever joke about their top scorer being Gabrielle, obviously having three Gabrielles, but thought better of it. Um, <laughs> so settled on them being the best set-piece team in the league because it's been a really fun feature. It was, I think, really, really analysed. or became quite mainstream against Palace, seeing the, the role of Leandro Trossard as a blocker. But I love the continuation of their sort of in-swingers-only policy. They've had the most corners uh, of any team in the top five leagues, and they've played the most in-swingers. So 135 of their 164 corners have been in-swingers. There's been 28 short corners, and there's been one singular out-swinger, which I went into Wisecout to find out, was Martin Odegaard against Tottenham. The fifth corner of the game, the out-swinger from the left-hand side, they got a first contact and the keeper caught the ball. I've got no explanation for why they decided to mix it up all of a sudden. But yeah, they're the best set-piece team in terms of goals scored. And of all sort of the big teams or top teams, they've got a slightly higher percentage of their XG that's created from set-pieces, mm-hmm. just over one-fifth. 
Weirdly, I think I'm right in saying that, I mean, this was the case last year for Arsenal. Yeah. It's a familiar thing. But actually, their women's side was the complete opposite, where in the women's game, in-swing is quite a big thing because you know I think the keepers struggle more in terms of covering the, the whole goal and, and crosses. But Arsenal were the only team in the league to play all the, their corners out-swingers. So, yeah, there's a lot of shared philosophy between men's and women's teams these days, but certainly doesn't extend to Arsenal's set pieces. There's loads of great stuff on site about Arsenal set pieces. Ahmed Walid, big, big friend of the pod, um, has done loads of it. It's, it's one of his specialty areas. Jordan Campbell, one of our Arsenal writers, has done a good piece as well. I believe spoke to you over their set piece coach. So there's loads of great stuff if people want to go and indulge their, the their reading as well. Arsenal's online conspiracy theorists were out in force <laughs> this week, weren't they? The, the Premier League were highlighting some of the funky stuff that Arsenal do at set pieces in order to be league leading on that front absolutely ticking don't do this for other clubs do you and, and highlight that, what they're doing well and that's how Premier League teams do their opposition analysis as they sit on the Premier League feed and they just refresh it until something comes up as a, as a secret Michael what about Chelsea bizarre season again really for the club and even you know statistically some real quirks some actually quite good stuff some really not so good stuff uh, what stands out for you yeah, I've gone for an individual stat here and I've, I've found the most frequent fowler in the Premier League. And it's not just that he's the most frequent fowler, it's that he's the most frequent by absolutely miles. <laughs> so the top five goes Jordan Ayew and Moises Cosido, joint on 32. Fourth place, Jao Gomez on 33. Joint second, Dejan Kulusevski and Abdoulaye Ducore on 34. So creeping up quite, yeah. quite gradually. And then top of the tree, we've got Conor Gallagher with 47 fouls, Kick which people. really surprised me. Um, but, I mean, think about it, I was at that game against Brighton where he got uh, <laughs> two bookings. The second one, a really, really daft tackle. Just can't make that kind of challenge when you're already on a yellow. But even if you do count those bookings as two separate ones, there's sometimes debate about whether the second one is a, a booking or a, 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 essentially a straight red. But there's 10 players in the league who have got more bookings than him this season. So he kind of gets away with it. I think there are a lot of... A lot high up the pitch. Yeah, a lot of small fouls on the edge of the opposition box. Yeah. Not even breaking up counter-attacks, but like stopping counter-attacks before they've even started. That's how Um, I picture it, is Chelsea losing the ball, trying to, you know, thread a through ball at the top of the pitch and, and Gallagher just making sure that he's... You know, closing down like a like a dog with a tennis ball and, and making the foul if necessary. Or ideally winning the ball back, which I would hope the stats show he does a fair bit as well. Yeah, and I think it's also quite interesting because I was absolutely amazed when about nine or ten games into the season, Nicholas Jackson got suspended for five bookings. <laughs> and I was like, you're a centre forward. How can you get five bookings after nine or ten games? But that kind of fits into this pattern. You know, they are making a lot of fouls really high up. He's made the sixth equal most tackles in total. So that's, you know, reflective of his role. But it's actually a similar metric to the one you've just brought up because the top five, if you like, are Emerson Palmieri with 56, Joao Gomez, 57, Pedro Porro, 61, Vinicius Souza of Sheffield United, 67, and then Joao Paina with 90. <laughs> 23 more than the next best. Thank you for ruining my film stuff there. Exactly. It's actually, it's actually, I've got something else. Yeah. I can't bear it. As I said it, I thought, why are you doing this? We haven't got, <laughs> haven't got to Fulham yet. Also, as I've got FB ref up, you said Jordan Ayew is in the top five for fouls, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. He's, he's top for fouls one, isn't he? Yeah, he's, also, always, he's always up there in both. Yeah. The modern day Kevin Davis. Mm. Yeah. Love that. Uh, right, who's next? Still with you, Michael. West Ham. 
Yeah, another one where I think it's interesting in relation to the context. So West Ham make the latest subs in the league. They only give, David Moyes only gives an average of 15 minutes Mm -hmm. plus stoppage time to his substitutes. He also uses the second fewest subs after Pep Guardiola. Now, the two don't always go hand in hand. Uh, Everton, for example, they use very few subs, but Dyche uses them quite early. Um, Arsenal actually statistically use quite a lot of subs, but they come on very late. But Moyes is just very cautious. And I think that's interesting in relation to uh, the game at the weekend. He brought on Ben Johnson for Maxwell Cornet with 20 minutes to go, although it was actually 32 minutes to go once he factored in all that stoppage time. And he was booed very loudly and there was some chance of, you don't know what you're doing. And actually... I mean, David Moyes, he very much does know what he's doing, doesn't he? I mean, they just agree with, they just disagree yeah, with what Controversial take after decades at the very top level. But well, yes, there you go. But I mean, maybe it will discourage him further from making relatively early subs because that felt like quite, I mean, that was bringing off an attacking player for fullback, really. In yeah, he did, he did all right in midfield. But I mean, you don't tend to get booed for subs if it's like mm. five minutes to go. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I thought I thought maybe we could point to the fact that they haven't got a particularly deep bench and, and one doesn't want to be replacing, you know, starter quality players with uh, those who, who, you know, don't match that. And that looks like it has been the case in the last couple of games. A lot of young players on the bench under 23s. But if you go back a few weeks to when the squad's a little healthier, it's not a terrible bench. You know, that there are games where... Ben Rama is unused. There's games where Maxwell Cornet is unused. Danny Ings as well at times. So it's not just the case that he doesn't like his, or he doesn't have the, the substitutes available to him. That is a, a choice from David Moyes, a stylistic choice. Uh, Liam, you've got Aston Villa. I'm going to challenge you to do this without mentioning offsides. Challenge half failed. Um, well I thought it's become an interestingly quite divisive topic of like you either should do this thing or you shouldn't do this thing in terms of trying to squeeze so high so I thought I'd look at it as a see how much of a net positive they're in I thought an interesting contrast for what it's worth is they've been the least offside team themselves in the Premier League only 19 times which I thought for a team that tend to attack I know their wingers if you like tend to come in a lot but Ollie Watkins Mm. really likes to run in behind and and scores quite a few goals that way Mm. clearly just timing his runs really really well (laughs) they've conceded 71 three balls which is the most in the league 12 more than Luton who are who are second they've caught the most offsides uh, in Europe's top five leagues with 106 so it's what a net positive of 35 which I think just seems pretty good Um, and I know Tom watches a lot more Spanish football than I do but then Las Palmas are are first and second for three balls conceded uh, and offsides caught so it's you know very much a, a star thing in that regard. I only stuck that on you because we're trying to educate here and uh-huh. uh, we know that the average football fan knows about yeah. Aston Villa's offsides because yeah. Michael overheard Luton fans talking about it. It was quite fun, yeah, Luton against City it was and just two blokes on the concourse saying, have you seen Aston Villa's offside stats? <laughs> Which really surprised me that they were discussing that, but I really liked it. We're doing our job well. Yeah, I mean, look, they've lost three of their four games for the most three balls conceded. Um, so they this was against uh, United, Liverpool and Newcastle, so... At its very worst, yeah, it does get played through, but then it's part of the reason why they're they're so high up. So it's it's not perfect, but it's it's pretty good. It's it's eight or nine out of ten. Tom Harris, league leaders, Liverpool. Yeah, and they're leading the metrics in in quite a few areas, really. I mean, the one that I picked out, but there's quite a few fun ones, is that they've um, gained the most points in stoppage time this season with seven. So um, they scored obviously that last minute Darwin Nunez goal away at um, St James's Park. 
rescued a draw against Luton and also Harvey Elliott scored an injury time against Palace. So that is seven. They've also scored the joint most goals in injury time with seven as well alongside Arsenal. So yeah, they really know how to kind of turn it on as it gets to the latter stages, which obviously, you know, we were talking before about the psychological effects of conceding late, then, you know, scoring late is probably going to have the opposite. But one more, slightly more fun one is that they've hit the post the most times this season Mm -hmm. with 12. And I'm going to ask everybody to guess which player's done it the most, because I think it's... Oh, I think we know this, don't we? (laughs) Who's hit the post the most? Five it, times. Is it an obvious answer? Yes. Okay, then it's Darwin Nunez. It is Darwin <laughs> Nunez with five. Trent Alexander-Arnold with three, and then 19 other players are on two, and one of those is Mohamed Salah. So Nunez is actually quite far out in the lead in that regard. I was going to say, it feels like a lot for half a season's worth of shots. I wonder what the all-time Premier League record is for. Bryson did it a lot against Man United in one game where they hit the bar of the post like four or five times. Right. Um, so. I'd like it? to know the individual season record for woodwork hit. Let's go on to Brighton, Liam, and conveniently, they've been allocated to you. It was great previously because Graham Potter used to get called a tinker a lot, and no one's really called Roberto De Zerbi that. Um, and he is, and part of it seems to be his choice. He's prepared to be flexible. Part of it is injury sort of induced as well. But I like that there's two stats here that go together, and you tend to get managers being top of one sort of all the other. So he's had the most starting lineup changes in the league, and he's had the most subs as well and gives the highest average time per substitute in the league. You see Guardiola is often high up for sort of starting lineup changes. You get others that tend to be higher up for subs and changing things kind of either between games or within games. And he's kind of ended up doing both, in part because Brighton have conceded the first goal more this season. Mm. There's been games, I think Villaroy was a standout example, where they were they were quite badly down at half-time and he changed his front two. He's got the depth in the squad to do that as well when you look at the the variety of attackers they've got in midfielders, but they've just had a kind of system overhaul in, in recent weeks, gone from the, the 4-2-3-1 or the 4-2-4 that worked so well last season, having lost Caicedo and McAllister, um, and basically against Wolves were, were playing the same kind of 3-1-3-3 that they played against Tottenham where Billy Gilmore was the single pivot and you had Jack Hinshelwood and James Milner, nominally central midfielders, mm. playing these wing-back roles and up on the last line playing you know, making these runs in behind when they were being pressed high. I think Jason Steele's first pass of the game is is in behind the Wolves defence to James Milner, which is, is just great fun. So is, is your instinct that Brighton are taking on a little bit of a new skin now, kind of going into a Deserby Mark II or maybe Mark III era? And if so, are you feeling comfortable with it? Do you think, you know, is your instinct that it's it's necessary and, and something to be positive about? Well, it's about the profile of players that you've got. And when you lose two midfielders who play in a very a specific way, I think mm-hmm. it would be quite redundant to use different players differently. Billy Gilmore's biggest asset is his passing. He's not quite as physical as other players. So, yeah, and I think having to balance that with a European schedule and, you know, into European knockout rounds now where they've been really quite pragmatic at times in Europe is a, I think it can only be a good thing. And look, it's, it's different to last season. They can't play the same way. We're staying with you for a team that's, probably had the biggest swing between the first 10 games of the season, the second 10 games of the season. That makes them interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bournemouth. I'd like to give some flowers to Dominic Solanke here because he's yes. just been great fun this season. Um, and I'll give you a chance to ramble on about how good he is, Ali, uh, <laughs> in a second. I've actually got that in, in my notes. Um, but, <laughs> but Ali's got his recited rant. Well, I said, Ali, you saw this coming, question mark. Um, <laughs> you 40- saw this coming? <laughs> uh, he scored 44% of Bournemouth's goals, which is the highest proportion of any player for any team in the Premier League. Uh, and he's currently the top-scoring English player um, as well. He's one ahead of Jared Bowen, a few more than Watkins, who's got a load of assists as well. 
But I like the fact that he's taken Harry Kane's crown for the proportion of goals scored from last season at Tottenham and obviously the crown for top-scoring Englishman. He's really, really well-rounded and I think that stat normally points to a team that are over-reliant on one player, which they maybe are a little bit in terms of goal scoring, but he's interestingly had 11 different assisters for those 12 goals. I think Sinesi is the only person to have assisted him twice, so it's kind of a, you know, it's a... Not quite contradictory, but an interesting balance that you can have so much variety in how mm. you're creating for this player. And he's just in really, really good form. He's been so well-rounded. Um, he's been a real joy to watch. For what it's worth, and for those who haven't heard it before, my, my Solanke soliloquy, if you like, is is mainly just about how unfairly he was judged at such a young age and judged in a way that that y- other young players or other young strikers don't get judged or haven't been judged. So this stemmed from... The fact that he was very well known for scoring a lot of goals in Chelsea's youth system and got that unusual move to Liverpool at a young age and then was asked to play a fair amount of minutes for Liverpool's first team, mainly off the bench, when he hadn't played a lot of senior minutes. Uh, Alongside that, there was some reporting about perceived greed and him being badly advised by his agent. And I always think it's important to point out that the allegation, as it was, that he demanded a certain wage from Chelsea, otherwise he was going to leave, was later corrected and clarified by those that reported it. So he got tarred with a certain reputation, which I don't believe to have been uh, true. And so I've really enjoyed watching the comeback because that's not an easy thing for a young person to to handle. Um, in Bournemouth's relegation season, he, he started to play very well without famously finishing very well. So this image was built that Solanke was a busted flush. He wasn't as good as, as he thought himself to be or that he'd been perceived to be in the youth system. And uh, so he dropped down to the championship and, and slowly got his confidence back. And now we see him just perfect Premier League striker profile and still very young and thriving. And I have no doubt will probably play for one of the top teams at some point in the next few years. So I just think it's an interesting thing to look back on and just constantly question how people are, are perceived and judged and uh, try not to do it in the wrong way um anyway michael let's go to fulham yeah you've ruined my Joe paulinia <laughs> stuff so i'll go for the other one i think the other one is more interesting to be fair and a little bit like with conor gallagher it's not just that someone is top it's that they're top by miles and now we're looking at interceptions so the top five jared Branthwaite, 32 lewis cook 34 ethan pinnock 35 james tarkovsky 36 and then anthony robinson 55. Wow. Which is just miles clear of everyone else. And it kind of works with his style. He's obviously a player who I think is defined by speed. I think in particular his acceleration. And actually, when you think about his style, he reminds me a little bit of slightly odd comparison, but he reminds me of Gail Clichy at Arsenal, who wasn't a great defender in terms of tackling, in terms of being really solid, but was so good at just reading play and nipping in ahead of opponents and winning the ball without even having to make a tackle. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to look at that because he's not Renowned is a great defender, I would say, but clearly defends in his own way. I think one other stat that is worth bringing up to do with Robinson is he is the only player in the Premier League who has scored two own goals this season. Wow. So not great interceptions in that respect. I was going to say, is he a good Jedi mind reader? But the own goal stat doesn't doesn't really work for that. <laughs> no, good effort though. Um, I'm slightly confused because as you read out the rest of the top four, I was going, that's a centre-back, that's a centre-back. That's a central midfield player, Lewis Cook. That's another centre-back. So I was I was going to guess Tim Ream or one of Fulham's, or, or Joao Paino, sort of teased that it wasn't him. 
you know, there are certain metrics that, that tend to be dominated by a certain position on the pitch because there's a high volume mm. of those actions or incidents in certain positions. So I was, I, I'm really genuinely a bit rattled by the fact that it's a left back <laughs> who's got the most interceptions. Like, is that a case that opposition teams are targeting Robinson because they, they perceive him to be weak defensively and therefore he has the opportunity to intercept passes? I mean, it's unusual for someone who's based on one side of the pitch mm. to have this or to be leading this stat, I think. Yeah, I agree. I mean, looking at the other uh, players in the top 20, there's not that many fullbacks. I mean, a few creep in, but the only other one in the top 10 is uh, Michalenko at Everton. Um, but yeah, it does seem to be quite specific to Robinson's style. I mean, he, he does have twice as many as the next fullback, who is Michalenko. He's on 28, Robinson on 55. So yeah, I think the point about targeting him probably makes sense. Um, because I think They are he, really targeting him. Yeah, I mean, he does have that reputation, despite being quite a useful player. I think he's he's not the best defensively. But yeah, that's a, a funny one. Tom, there's always plenty to look at when it comes to Manchester City. What's the most exciting stat about them this season? Yeah, well, I try to avoid the kind of obvious, you know, they're really good in possession, they're really good, lots of passes. But Duncan Alexander actually fed me this one to say that they're currently on track to be the only team in Premier League history to finish a season with above 90% passing accuracy, Brilliant. which is incredible because, I mean, if you think about it, that's nine out of 10 passes completed across an entire season, which is... Can't argue with that. Or <laughs> <laughs> 90 it, out of 100. <laughs> but in terms of, you know, that's just insane. Um, and I mean, they've, they've come close before. They had 89.2% the season before that, 89.7% the season before that. So... They've come close, but yeah, if they pull it off, it's really kind of a resounding kind of signal that Pep Guardiola has obviously, after all this time, instilled his way of playing. And they have the highest number of touches in the attacking third as well. So it's not just a case of them knocking it around the back four with no pressure being put on them, albeit I'm sure that is an aspect of this statistic. All that before they score a goal at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Incredible. <laughs> what a sport. Uh, Michael, Sheffield United having a tough time down the bottom of the Premier League. What have you found for us? Yeah, I wanted to try and pull something out that was positive about Sheffield United. Um, and I couldn't. I really struggled, I'm afraid. They're just... Every metric you look at... I mean, fewest goals, fewest shots, fewest shots on target, second worst shot on target percentage, worst conversion rate highest average shot distance and at the other end most goals conceded most shots conceded most shots on target conceded worst or highest conversion rate for their opponents actually mid-table in terms of shot distance allowed and also I mean at times they've looked good on the counter-attack but they're also the only team in the league where more than 50% of their attempted take-ons players dispossessed ah. so they're not even doing that well despite having a few players I mean I've been impressed by McAtee at times I think Harmer's having a, a decent season as well. But there's just, obviously, they've changed their manager. There hasn't been a significant um, improvement in their fortunes. I think they probably look a little bit better under Wilder. But there's just not anything really I think I can hang my hat on in terms of being a, a strength for Sheffield United, I'm afraid. You'd hope that they might be near the top four blocks or clearances for, for whatever that's worth. Not Not a huge amount. It's more down to time spent out of possession and defending one's own box. But uh, yeah, a tough scene for uh, Blades so far this season. Uh, what about Brentford, Liam? They had to cope without Ivan Tony for the first half of the season. And I think it's a really interesting discussion as to how they went about that, mm. how they managed to keep their heads above water without a player who, in terms of sort of 
value to their team has to be right up there in, in Premier League terms. So um, statistically, what stands out? Well, this one's slightly tenuous, and I'll come to why in a second. But they're the only team in the Premier League in all competitions this season to have won three in a row, drawn three in a row, and lost three in a row. Now, those three draws came at the start of the season, which includes drawing against Palace, against Bournemouth, and against Newport County in the League Cup, which they then won on penalties. So I get the argument that that's, that's a win, not a draw. Mm. But going across 90 minutes or regulation time, they've lost five in a row this season in, in December, which is obviously when Antonio was out. And I think when Mbouyama got injured as well. So Mbouyama has been a really big miss. Um, and part of the reason why Morpé's uh, come back on loan. But they've also won three in a row uh, at the end of October and the start of November when they beat Burnley, Chelsea and West Ham. I think it's interesting because you tally that now with the fact that at a look since their promotion, um, they're still the second best uh, of the non-Big Six sides against Big Six teams mm -hmm. uh, in the Premier League, which is a really, really good return. They've had nine wins in that time, only lost 14. So they've taken 33 points in 29 games, better than a point a game. And their next eight games looks like a really hard fixture list. They've got Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, City twice and Tottenham. But the fact that they've got Tony back and how good they can be against, you know, that really reinforces them. They play that 3-5-2 or the 5-3-2, the only team last season to do the double over Manchester City in, in the Premier League. Um, I actually think that could be more beneficial for them than it necessarily looks. You can sort of go, oh, you're struggling. You want to play sort of lower down teams. But for a team that can do the other side of the game so well, mm. it, it might be a blessing in disguise. Michael, you've got Luton Town. Yeah, another promoted club. I think this stat shows their style because on one hand, they've got the lowest passes attempted and completed and indeed the lowest pass completion rate. But they're joint third in terms of completed crosses into the penalty box. Brentford and Bournemouth are just ahead of them. Uh, this isn't including set, uh, set This isn't including set pieces, by the way. And that has been a big feature of their play. You think of how they caused Man City problems. They went 1-0 up against the reigning European champions with Adebayo heading home at the far post. And I just think they've got the balance right this season, Luton. You know, I wouldn't call them, they're definitely not a long ball route one side, but they're still quite direct. And I think that, you know, particularly those big games uh, at home to the the big clubs, Liverpool, they got a draw. Arsenal, they very nearly got a draw in a brilliant 4-3 defeat. And also looking at the players who do cross, a young winger they've got called Alfie Doughty is the top in the league. And I think the interesting thing is not necessarily that he's top, but he can play from both sides. He's played on the left and on the right. And he's also got the second best aerial success rate in the league after Virgil van Dijk. Wow, in the not, whole league. Yeah, so not a, a huge number of uh, aerial duels contested compared to some other players. But it's quite rare that a player is both a crosser and seemingly a decent aerial target. Actually quite annoying, really, because you can't get him <laughs> on the end of his own crosses. Uh, and I've got a soft spot for him because five years ago, he was on loan at my team Kingstonian in the seventh tier. And here we are five years later, and he's playing really well in his debut Premier League campaign. I wonder what he can do is cross and head a ball. Yeah, and honestly, that is true. <laughs> he's proper Isthmian League uh, pedigree. He must have been so quick in the Isthmian League. I mean, he's quick in the Premier League. Mm. Um, yes, we celebrate the English football pyramid with every opportunity, seventh tier to first top tier in uh, in five years. It's uh, it's remarkable, really. Yeah, just one more thing on Luton, and it's, again, not grounded in, in play style or anything like that, but they're the only team to, basically, in their games, in the opening 10 minutes, they have neither scored or conceded. Oh, yeah. So don't watch first 10 minutes of Luton <laughs> games, basically. Well, but do watch the kickoffs. Do watch the mm. kickoffs. Because they're quite... Yeah lively in, in how they approach those compared to the league. Yeah, watch the kickoff, then make a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> we'll just read Michael's piece about kickoffs in the Premier League, kickoff analysis in the Premier League, uh, foam free kick analysis in the Premier League. It's all happening on the Athletic site. You're going to games gone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly that the three teams that came up are all in the bottom three, but within that group of three, Luton have 16, four more than Burnley, who have two more than Sheffield United. Do you think the key aspect for Luton having been the best of the three so far, Michael, is this idea that they have both a style of play that is extreme rather than uniform, so a little unusual, but also that they're all seemingly very comfortable within that skin, whereas Sheffield United's style is a little harder to pin down or has been. And Burnley's, maybe there's just been a group of players, a lot who came in in the summer, that just simply have not adapted to it. Yeah, and I think Luton do have a couple of players who have not necessarily Premier League experience, but they've got a couple of players who we know they are capable of providing quality in the Premier League. I mean, Townsend is an obvious example. And yeah. Barkley, particularly in those big games, has been fantastic. I think Nakamba's actually done quite... Not Nakamba. Um, yeah. Nakamba, yeah. So, also think Nakamba's done quite well and uh, Lukonga as well when he's coming to the side. So, they not necessarily Premier League experience, but Premier League quality, I think, is the... The real thing, which I'm, I mean, Burnley have got a very young squad. I think maybe in a couple of years, a few of those players could be all right. But yeah, at times I just think they've been a bit outclassed. What about Manchester United? Yeah, it's a bit of an obvious one from me for Manchester United. They have the lowest shot conversion rate in the Premier League, 8.2%. And the sides who also have a uh, very bad pass completion rate are... 12th, 15th, 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th in the league. So it's just an issue across the board. You look at the players individually, Hoyland, 10%, Rashford and Garnacho, 7%. Bruno Fernandes, who I think of as, you know, usually uh, chipping with a few goals, only 4% of his shots have ended in a goal. And Anthony, 0% uh, from 24 shots. It's tough to really blame it on... The manager, I think sometimes it suggests they're taking uh, shots from bad positions. I think when you dig into that data, kind of, it, it's mainly been about bad underperformance from individuals. I think Rashford in particular has been really frustrating with his shooting. I think technically he's a funny player where when he's in, in really good form, he tends to be quite calm and just like place the ball or curl it quite delicately. And when he's lacking confidence, he just smashes it often straight down the throat of the goalkeeper. Tom? Uh, you're taking a look at Sean Dyche's Everton. Yeah, and at, at the start of December, I wrote an article basically trying to look at the effect of teams being switched around at uh, kickoff. Because nice. I, I find it a bit of a, uh, you know, when you're watching your team and then the away team comes and makes you shoot the other way, it's a bit unsettling, there's mm. a bit of paranoia, I don't really like it. <laughs> Inadvertently, I basically found that Everton and Sean Dyche in particular is obsessed with doing this. That's great. And I've become obsessed with Sean Dyche being obsessed with it. It's, it's just brilliant. I mean, he's 22 away games in charge of Everton and 15 of those, he's managed to turn the team around. Right. So not only is that amazing that, you know, he's so obsessed with it, but how, how is he winning so many I was coin tosses? Say, it's more than way of 50%, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's amazing. And if you basically look at every single game, more or less, like the big games in particular, they manage to do it. And they've got some results doing it as well. So if you look at the games where they have turned around their opponents, they've six wins, five draws and four defeats. So it's not too bad. That five and win at Brighton, not to remind you of it, Liam, but that was a turnaround. Um, they got a point at Stamford Bridge last season. 
I think my favourite one is that they beat Doncaster Rovers, who were yep. bottom of the EFL at the time, and they had the audacity to go <laughs> and turn them around just, just to, to sure. get that psychological kind of effect. But yeah, uh, I'd love to do a bit of a deeper dive into some of the other teams, but Daesh seems to be the one who, who loves it the most. Yeah, I really enjoyed that article. And obviously I'm coming at this from someone who follows cricket as well, but I think the coin toss should be, if not broadcasted, at least declared. I want to know. I want to know who's won it. And if they switch, you know, if it's a neutral venue, for example, if they switch, who wanted to switch? Mm. I think it's relatively interesting. Yeah, relatively. But also, (laughs) (laughs) but why doesn't every manager, why doesn't every team do this? You know, if we're talking about trying to find marginal gains that haven't already been found, we talk about, well, actually, I'd like to do a whole episode about the concept of home advantage, Mm. why it exists. But I think one of the answers is, the level of comfort that the home team feels and therefore it stands to reason that making them feel a little less comfort can't hurt, can it? Or is the flip side, they'll be so angry they'll somehow play better? Yeah, I mean, there are a few teams who seem to be quite immune to it, um, interestingly. So Arsenal basically never lose when they get turned around. I mean, obviously they are a good team, so they're likely to win more of their games. But City, for example, do seem to be a little bit rattled by it. Um, Aston Villa were the last team who did it um, when they nearly beat Manchester City winning mm-hmm. title when Philippe Coutinho scored that goal. Yeah, there was also a game against Burnley where Ben Mee, of Daesh in charge of Burnley as well, another another great storyline there, but Ben Mee scored an equaliser at the, the wrong end in the second half. Pep Guardiola has interviewed it, about it afterwards and he is furious. Um, very, very memeable interview that came <laughs> from that. So, yeah, they do seem to struggle a little bit and, you know, obviously teams can have their off days, but yeah, it might, it might stand to reason that more teams should maybe try it. I like how sometimes, to go back to cricket, Michael, in a five-match series like the Ashes, people start getting like quite weird and angry about a captain losing three tosses in a row. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of books that Mark could suggest about the statistics of toying tosses and just statistics in general. Coin tosses. Why do I say... I always say toying toss. Like uh, Parkark. I really shouldn't speak... <laughs> Shouldn't speak for a living. Uh, what about um, <laughs> Crystal Palace, Tom? Yeah, quite a lot, actually, for Crystal Palace, um, but none of them particularly good, unfortunately. Ah. Um, they're the only team yet to score from outside the box this season, which I found quite interesting. They've had 82 shots and they haven't scored any of them, which is quite remarkable. They had nine against Arsenal as well last weekend. Um, Ebre Eze had quite a lot of those. And 96 shots from outside the box since they last scored. So they're trying, but they're they're not conceding. And also, they're the only team yet to score a corner in the Premier League this season, which I find very interesting. Mm. Well, it conceded from two of Arsenal's corners at the weekend and then one of their own corners. <laughs> right. Very quick counter-attack that Raya caught, chucked to Jesus. And it was a great throw. I love that. Proper like... Proper like uh, fast bowler technique, real real over on bowling it. Hodgson's done it all. He just he's upping yeah. the difficulty level before he bows out. And um, Michael, just before we go, I really enjoyed that uh, when you wrote about Crystal Palace this week, albeit the title of the piece was something you know relatively normal and serious. Uh, your tweet plugging the article just said, "I like Crystal Palace," which reminded me of like a sort of four year old's first piece of English homework. <laughs> I like Crystal Palace by Michael, age four. Yeah, I do. I do really like him. Do the whole answer in the style of a four-year-old. <laughs> uh, well, I won't do that. But yeah, that's on site today. I mean, there's obviously a lot of um, discontent amongst fans at the moment. 
because of a lack of ambition or lack of progress. But personally speaking, as, as a kind of neutral, just like their presence in the Premier League, you kind of know what you're going to get from them. And they've got this great habit of going away to Man City in particular, but a few of the big sides, and just putting off a, a big result. Mm. And I think that's partly because they're so wedded to this counter-attacking style, which no doubt really frustrates the supporters, particularly because they consistently get more away points than home points. They're the only team in the history of the Premier League who consistently do that. But yeah, for a, for a neutral, I think they're really good fun. Well, there we go. 20, probably 20 plus, 20 and change Premier League stats, one for each team uh, for you to bank and use as you wish. Uh, it's been really fun with Liam, with Michael, with Tom. Does anyone have any interest in guessing what my secret metric was in order to deduce the, the order? I know it's wrong, but the closest thing I could get to it was average age. Um, and I didn't look because I saw Burnley up near the top and I think Everton near the bottom and there are a few teams in the middle because it's there's no nothing in there to me that indicates quality at all um, or like output at either end because you've got a, a scattering of teams based on those positions. Well, it's almost like I think long and hard about this and don't, I don't want it to be a qualitative measure because then we would front load all the big clubs. Yeah. Uh, Michael? Something to do with minutes for homegrown players. Lovely. Lovely. Wrong, but lovely. Mm. I genuinely have no idea. I think that's because I have my head in spreadsheets and football Quite stats right. all the time. You've like... actually been concentrating on the job at hand, for which I respect <laughs> you. I'm very pleased with your performance, Tom. Uh, it is, obviously, goalkeeper thrown passes per 90. I actually had a look at goalkeeper <laughs> throws as a stat during this. Bet you didn't yeah, per 90 it, though, did you? I nearly went... My second stat for Newcastle was going to be they've had the most the goalkeepers throwing the ball the most. And Nick they went Pope. first. Nick Pope loves a throw. Oh, nice James to... Trafford throws it all the time. Vicario. And at the other end, Palace, Everton, Manchester United, allergic to goalkeeper throws. Uh, thank you for humouring me, guys. Thanks for a really fun episode as well. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, listening wherever you are in the world, please subscribe both to this podcast feed, wherever you get your pods, uh, but also to The Athletic where you can read a number of great articles that have been referenced in this very episode and so much more as well. Theathletic.com forward slash tactics, the place to go to get the best current offer on an annual subscription. Make sure that you listen again next week as well and go very well. The Athletic.